Hello and welcome to the State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And today on the program we have Liz Wisson. Liz, am I saying that correctly? Is it Wisson or Wisson? Wisen. Like, Wisen. Like Weisenheimer. Of course. <laughs> Liz is making her Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival debut. Her recent acting credits include appearances at Theatre for New Audience, Yale Rep, Atlantic Theatre Company, Lincoln Center Theatre, The Old Globe, Berkeley Rep, and the Shakespeare Theatre Company, just to name a few. She's a graduate of the Yale School of Drama, and she's appearing this season at Hudson Valley as Kate in The Taming of the Shrew. Welcome, Liz. Thank you so much. So this is your first season at Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival. It is. We've done a number of interviews, the most recent being Julia Coffey. Oh, great. And Julia, this is her second season, but her first full season there. And she talked about stuff that they did to her as a first-timer. Stuff that they did to her? Some pranks, perhaps, that they might have pulled on her. Have you experienced any initiations or anything like that? No. I mean, I'm scared now. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I will say that Kurt Rhodes, he's a jokester. And so there's been a couple a couple jokes, but just verbal jokes, but nothing, you know, I haven't found like snakes in my costumes or anything <laughs> like that. I hope that's not coming. To preserve it, I won't, we won't say anything about <laughs> oh, what no. Julia said. Okay. Okay. <laughs> the idea of first times and especially first times in Shakespeare is, is, is something that I'm fascinated with. So we've read your bio and of course you've got recent credits that are fantastic and easily recognizable theaters, but we all start out somewhere. Did you ever do an off the beaten path summer stock gig, maybe your first gig in Shakespeare? What was that like? I think the first Shakespeare that I did out of college was at Williamstown Theater Festival. And they used to have the Apprentice Company, and then there was an Act One Company, which was a group of 10 actors, and you would do three plays in a season. And one of the plays we did was Twelfth Night, and I played Festy, and that was great fun. I will say I had, at that point, I'd had kind of no training in Shakespeare, so I didn't really know what I was doing. Feste would be hard for someone who had not, oh, yeah. no training, although maybe like a clown, you're approaching it with a blank mind and you found some new stuff. I may have been. I mean, I really, I couldn't tell you how that show went, you know, <laughs> it was 15, 15 years ago. <laughs> like, I think it was, it was good. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, no, I actually kind of hated Shakespeare until I worked with Peter Francis James at Yale. And he's a fantastic teacher. And he just sort of opened my eyes to the possibilities with Shakespeare and, you know, all the tools you can use to find the hidden gems. And I love it now, but I really did. I really did kind of hate it. (laughs) Can you point to a, a specific moment or thing about Shakespeare that sort of hooked you and turned your corner? I mean, it really just was that before I understood how to translate it, it just didn't make any sense to me. It just seemed so inaccessible. And I think I also hadn't seen a lot of Shakespeare productions where I understood what the story was. But Peter Francis James, PFJ, we call him. He helped us understand that, you know, these are like totally human stories that are still so relevant today. And of course, that's why we still do them. And then we were taught a lot of different sort of exercises you can do with Shakespeare text to help find a way in. And being able to find that way in and know that there were like specific exercises that I could do to get into the story, to get into the character to understand what the words actually mean, 
was really exciting, I imagine. It was exciting and it stopped becoming such a mystery. I mean, you know, Shakespeare is still a beautiful mystery in many ways, but it, it became accessible and I started to love it. So let's talk about Taming of the Shrew because it is a tricky play, particularly in this mm-hmm. day and age. First step with, with Kate, what was your first step? Well, so my general understanding is that just in reading it, you know, on the page, it's quite either a misogynistic play or a play about misogyny, but there's a lot of abuse. And on the page, it kind of appears that Kate is a victim, that she is being overpowered and forced to be with a man that she doesn't really like, who's quite mean to her. And at the end, she kind of becomes submissive with this very tricky final speech that she has. And we very clearly wanted this Kate to to have more agency. We did not want her to be a victim. We were very careful to craft in moments where she can make a choice and she kind of keeps choosing to go on this journey with Petruchio. Who is she, by the way? And what what are her circumstances? What's going on? (laughs) (laughs) I think that in today's world, there are women who are strong, independent, outspoken. They call themselves feminists. And there are a lot of people who look at these women and, you know, if a man had all of these qualities, he would just be a man, right? But there are still plenty of people who will see a woman with these qualities and think that she is overbearing or, you know, a shrew, you know, talks too much and is kind of a problem, is something to look out for. And so, you know, this play is happening today. And, you know, I I relate quite strongly to this woman. I feel like I should be a certain thing as a woman. And I am this other thing that is not always accepted, that is not always appreciated. Does she see herself as a misfit? I think that everyone else sees her as a misfit. And so when enough people tell you that you are something, there is a part of you that believes that. Mm. I mean, I think that she does. She knows very strongly that she's not the problem, that everyone else is the problem in the sense that like they can't accept her. They can't they can't see the injustice of making women dress a certain way or deciding their fate by marrying them to someone. I think she really feels that if she had been born a man, she wouldn't be treated like this. She would just be able to exist as she is with her mind. Well, what's interesting to me is that, I mean, she has a voice, but she doesn't have a voice, if you know what I mean. It's so weird. Yeah, there are some scenes. This I will say this was an incredibly tricky thing about working on this, that she... There, there are some scenes and some moments where she is very outspoken and she makes very clear what she wants. And then there are other scenes where she is just, she is dead silent. At least Shakespeare has written her as being dead silent. And so trying to figure out, you know, trying to navigate that, why does she not have a voice? And in our production, I think we've kind of been trying to create these moments where she she doesn't have the words. I mean, she's present and she's still reacting with 
Petruchio, you know, usually it's Petruchio who's, he just runs his (laughs) mouth all the time, right? (laughs) You know, and maybe she just doesn't have the words. Like there is still, she'll play actions on him, but maybe they're just physical because Shakespeare did not give her words for that. And so it is, it is so bizarre that she, that she does in some ways lose her voice. Well, the other characters marginalize her to the extent that they don't really listen to or hear her. And Petruchio comes in and he's different, not necessarily (laughs) sympathetic to her point of view, but, but he is interacting with her. He is interacting with her. It's this crazy tightrope of, you know, he's, he's a sexy guy and he's smart and he is giving her a chance. There are moments where he calls her beautiful and it seems like he really sees her. And then there are other moments where it seems like he's just totally gaslighting her. Hmm. You know, to use a very modern term. <laughs> <laughs> One of the other theories about Taming the Shrew is that Kate finally finds her equal in Petruchio. Oh, totally. Yeah. No, I, I think that co- that comes quite late in the play. I mean, obviously it has to. If it came earlier, then the play would need to go on. <laughs> but I do think that, like, especially in that sun and the moon scene, I mean, that, that sort of seems like the height of gaslighting, right? Like, it's this thing. No, it's not. It's this other thing. Tell me it's this thing. Okay, fine. It's this thing. No, it's the other thing. But I think she, she realizes in that scene, it's not that he's trying to, like, make her crazy. It's that that's kind of like his price of admission for being in a relationship with him. It's his ask. And honestly, I think she, she realizes, like, that's not such a big ask. If that's the thing that he needs for me to play this game with him, it's sort of a childish game. Like it's a thing that kids might play, like picking up a block and saying, this is a phone. You say like, you pick up the block and you say, hello. You know, it's sort of like this make-believe game that he wants to play. She kind of realizes like, that's not, I I can do that. That's not that hard. In this play, I think audiences delight in the idea that very unlikely lovers come together and not only are they unlikely lovers, they are both very witty and funny and Mm -hmm. charismatic and Mm -hmm. powerful people. So I think that is something that audiences still delight in in watching that that story and watching these people come together. But this play is about so much more. You know, it's about gender roles and power and sex and domination and submission and very bad behavior, especially at a time now when sexual politics is again at the forefront of the political discourse and when bad behavior by celebrities and celebrity politicians is being exposed and punished or flaunted and celebrated depending on which camp you're in what does Shakespeare bring to that conversation? I want to go back for one second because I think what Garrett asks is a really important question Mm -hmm. but one of the things that gets lost in the taming of the shrew by audiences because they're excited to see the, the battle between Petruchio and Kate what gets lost is there's love between them Yeah, and I think that the love happens quite quickly. I think it's one of those moments where they see each other and they're like, oh yeah, (laughs) this is the one. Yeah, I do think that there is this, I think that Kate both deeply, deeply desires to love and to be loved. But I I think that she kind of tries to push it away because it doesn't fit with her sort of idea that like, to be a strong, powerful woman, I don't need a man in the way that Bianca needs a man. And so I think that the, the, the love, the attraction, both physically and to his personality and his mind, I think that she, she, she doesn't quite give into it, that there's, it's, it's a pull that keeps pulling her in, but she doesn't want it. 
you know, mm. or, or she, she tries not to want it. And I do think that so much of this play is about giving in, not submitting to someone controlling you, but giving in to the softer sides of being with another person. That it's okay. Yeah, that, that maybe you don't always have to have this huge armor on. You don't have to be defensive all the time. You don't have to protect yourself all the time. So going back to Garrett's question, is that yeah. what Shakespeare brings to the conversation? Is that, yes, you can be these people, but and you can be a strong, powerful woman, but there's another side to it as well. And same thing with a man. I mean, a man's got to do the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, I think we often think the taming of the shrew is the taming of Kate, but it's, I think it's the taming of both of them, the taming of two wild individuals to be able to soften their hard edges and be able to come together. And I think the key to that is that they come together on terms that they both agree on. Yeah, I mean, she makes this sort of bargain with him. You know, if what you will have it named, even that it is. Like, I will give you this thing. If, if this is the game we need to play, I will give you that. And so it shall be so for Catherine. And you have to give that back to me. If I give you this, I need something in return. It's a negotiation that they have to make. And once they kind of agree to the terms of that, then game on. You know, they can they can really become this partnership. And they're no longer like two opposing warring factions, but they're now on the same team. So let me ask you this then. How do you square all of what we just said with this last speech that you're about to speak? Yes. So we have taken the liberty to change a couple pronouns in here Uh so that it is, because the speech as written is just like, this is what a woman must do for a man. And we have changed a couple pronouns and we have changed a word. I'm ashamed women are so simple. We've changed it to I'm ashamed people are so simple. And I think with these subtle changes, what we're trying to do is to show that for a relationship to work, it's not that one person has to submit. It's not that the woman has to calm down and relax and give in to the husband. It's that for a relationship to work, both parties have to compromise. And so the line changes from such duty as the subject owes the prince, even such a woman oweth to her husband. And when she is froward, peevish, sullen, sour, we change that to, you know, such duty as a subject owes the prince, even such a woman oweth to her husband. And when he is froward, peevish, sullen, sour, you know, so that like she has to do this for him and he has to do this for her. And then instead of women being so simple, people, people are so simple to offer war when they should kneel for peace. So what we're trying to do is implicate everyone, everyone in the play, everyone in the audience is guilty of this. We have all continued the fight when we could have been the one to say I'm sorry, when we could have been the one to to make peace. Mm. So that that is that's what we're trying to do with this, at least. Well, why don't we hear it? Why don't you do it? And people can follow along with the original text and see if they can spot the changes. Okay. <laughs> so this is Liz Wisen doing Taming of the Shrew, character of Kate, Act 5, Scene 2. Fie, fie, unknit that threatening unkind brow, and dart not scornful glances from those eyes to wound thy lord, thy king, thy governor. It blots thy beauty as frosts do bite the meads, confounds thy fame as whirlwinds shake fair buds, and is in no sense meet 
or amiable. A woman moved is like a fountain troubled, muddy, ill-seeming, thick, bereft of beauty. And while it is so, none so dry or thirsty will deign to sip or touch one drop of it. Thy husband is thy Lord, thy life, thy keeper, thy head, thy sovereign, one that cares for thee, and for thy maintenance commits his body to painful labor, both by sea and land, to watch the night in storms, the day in cold, whilst thou liest warm at home, secure and safe, and craves no other tribute at thy hands, but love, fair looks, and true obedience. Too little payment for so great a debt. Even such duty as the subject owes the prince, even such a woman oweth to her husband. And when he is froward, peevish, sullen, sour, and not obedient to her honest will, what is he? but a foul contending rebel and graceless traitor to his loving Lord. I am ashamed people are so simple to offer war when they should kneel for peace or seek for rule, supremacy, and sway when they are bound to love, serve, and obey. Why are our bodies soft and weak and smooth, unapt to toil and trouble in the world, but that our soft conditions and our hearts should well agree with our external parts. Come, come, you froward and unable worms. My mind hath been as big as one of yours, my heart as great, my reason happily more to bandy word for word and frown for frown. But now I see our lances are but straws, our strength as weak, our weakness past compare, that seeming to be most which we indeed least are. And veil your stomachs, for it is no boot. And place your hands below your lover's foot in token of which duty, if he please. My hand is ready. May it do him ease. Thank you. And we also changed below your husband's foot. Yes, your- lover's <laughs> foot. Right. Yes, we have a little star next to that. <laughs> okay, so I guess the first question is, when you start the speech, who are you talking to? At first, I'm talking to Petruchio, like, I'm not going to do that. Screw you. Sorry, I don't know if I can say that. Oh, you can um, say that. Okay, great. <laughs> I, I would actually choose a stronger word. <laughs> uh, like I'm not going to do that. And then, and then I, and then I, the way I'm thinking about this speech is I'm mocking him. So like I, I'm sort of speaking the way we hear men speak. Like you better do this. And then I think I kind of realized that that not just for men, but being angry and aggressive is not an attractive thing to lure people close to you. Not just it's not attractive as a woman, but it doesn't invite friendship. It doesn't invite communication. It doesn't invite 
interaction. It's, you know, it's, it's a defense mechanism. It pushes people away. And so I think she kind of realizes, she realizes that. And that seeming to be most which we indeed least are. Is that what you're talking about? I think that the part that you just read is the moment where she realizes like being able to be vulnerable, that is strong. That is powerful. That's, that's generous. If you always are like covered in this layer of armor, it's a very thin layer of armor and the rest of us is gooey. You know? <laughs> Humans don't have exoskeleton. You know, we have we're covered in skin. We can be hurt so easily. So just like live in the skin. Don't pretend you're a cockroach. You know, don't pretend you're a lobster with it. Like, the taming of the lobster. The taming of the lobster, yeah. So when you were doing it, one of the things that I was thinking about is how you you know, it's it's almost like you're you're scolding the women who are like that and then slowly as the speech wears on, particularly with your the changes that you all have made it starts to become a conversation with Petruchio. It is. Part of this is continuing the negotiation with him. But I think it's also to it's also to the audience. We're really trying to implicate the audience as well. You you know, like I know you all do this too. I know that you all fight when you could not. So I think I think we are trying to kind of invite everyone into the conversation with this. So again, I mean, to go back to the question that Garrett brings up, because I think it is an absolutely vital question when doing this play in this day and age. I mean, it's almost like Shakespeare's pointing a way, like a path Mm -hmm. for people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I imagine that human nature is, has not changed in the sense that people have always put up walls and protected themselves, you know? And taken advantage of the weak. Yes, and taken advantage of the weak, exactly. It's a scary proposition, I think. It's terrifying, you know? For Kate, I think it's terrifying for Petruchio. I think it's terrifying for probably anyone in the audience. It's scary to be vulnerable because, you know, that's that's when you can get hurt. But perhaps if we all accept that challenge, if we all agree to lead with our vulnerability instead of our might, then perhaps we would be more careful with each other and we wouldn't inflict hurt so much and then others wouldn't get hurt. I mean, that's sort of like a best case scenario for humanity. (laughs) 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 But one can dream, right? Well, it's interesting because it goes back to what you were saying about Kate. She's like, well, I could do this one thing for him. Yeah. It starts with that one thing. And I'm sure as they move on through life, there will be more compromises. And, and I, I almost said the word concessions, but that concessions feels like losing. Right. And even compromise sometimes sounds like losing. But I think in, in their compromise, the thing that they have to give up or slightly alter gets them so much more because it, it gets them this person. It gets them this partner. And I think sometimes we're afraid of giving something up because we don't want to lose a piece of ourselves. But perhaps what we get in return is even greater than that small piece. And I think that's hard to see or or to recognize or to trust. Absolutely. Scary. Goes back to that scare. Liz, so... For people who are interested, the Taming the Shrew is open. It's running up at Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival. Yes. And it runs until, tell us when? August 24th. And so to get tickets, people can go to box office at hvshakespeare.org. And they should go, don't you think? 
I think they should definitely go. I think especially if you think this play shouldn't be done today, you should come check it out and give it a chance. Interesting. I think what we're trying to do is is not tell it in the way that people have seen before. I think we are trying to present a Kate that has more agency, that is going along by choice and not by force. Liz Weissen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. This was really great. Yeah, nice early morning deep conversations about love and relationships. <laughs> Liz, this was awesome. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare.